In our last episode, new Illinois Supreme Court rulings forced state's attorney Arlie Boswell to dismiss dozens of liquor cases. In 1926, a Heron election sparked another battle between the Klan and bootleggers, which spelled the ending of the Klan's influence in southern Illinois. <laughs> Night of Another Sort, Prohibition Days and Charlie Berger, by Gary Deneal. Chapter 15, Blonde Bombshell. On August 22, 1926, Harry Walker and Everett Smith were killed in a roadhouse north of Marion. Shot through the head, Smith fell near the door, and moments later, Walker came running, only to be felled by a bullet in the back that penetrated his heart. He, too, lay near the doorway. When charged with these killings some months later, Art Newman would say only that a tough gangster had killed the pair. But with becoming reticence, the little gambler failed to attach a name to his allegation. Nothing came of the charges against Newman. Of the several witnesses, most contracted temporary amnesia when their time came to testify before the coroner's jury. Some didn't stick around long enough even for that. A woman entertainer who had registered earlier at a Marion hotel arrived at her room following the shootings, packed her bags and fled, saying over her shoulder as she left that there had been trouble at the roadhouse. Waiting for her in an automobile were two men and another frantic woman. While little real information came forth concerning the two killings, Arlie O. Boswell remembered well their aftermath. After the killing of these two boys at this little hamburger place right north of the cemetery, when we were to have the inquest on the following Monday, I was visited by Ray Walker and Carl Shelton, who had driven up in the front of my house in two cars. Carl Shelton introduced himself to me again and said Mr. Walker wanted to talk to me, and that he came along. I took them up to my office, but at the time I noticed that four guys got out, two out of each car, with guns. When I later looked out and saw them sitting in the yard, I asked Mr. Shelton to make those guys get back in the car with those guns and not create a scene there in front of my house. In this conversation, Ray Walker came to inform me that I was not to have any inquest in the death of his brother, that he knew who killed him and they would take care of them in the usual fashion. I advised him that we would have an inquest and that I wished he would not attend. He said, well, you aren't going to have an inquest, and that's what I came here to advise you. When I say that, I mean it. And then his hand began to shake, and that's when Carl said, You move that hand another inch, I'll kill you right here in this man's house. And he apologized to me. The inquest was graced by the presence of Blackie Arms and one of the Sheltons. Whether their attendance in any way affected the findings of the coroner's jury, that the two men had met their deaths at the hands of parties unknown, is not known. Quite aware that the full story was not being told, the state's attorney felt that the killings were committed by members of the Burger Gang. And Ray Walker, he is convinced, held the same opinion. I'm telling you, it was a really hushed mouth affair, Boswell said. But you can't make them testify if they don't want to testify. There was a hell of a lot of heat put on. That a gang war was brewing became increasingly clear, 
to anyone who opened a newspaper or loitered on a street corner. Some even bothered to ask why. One popular account credits the Burger Shelton break to the fickle nature of Helen Richson Holbrook of Shawneetown. While Berger was in Florida buying whiskey, so the story goes, his wealthy sweetheart was having a wing-ding with his erstwhile friend Carl Shelton in St. Louis. Jealous as usual, Berger learned of their frolic and saw red, Carl's blood preferably. So neat is the tale and so hauntingly symmetrical, it begs to be authenticated, but cannot be. Twice married, Helen probably had flings with both men, as well as with several others. Of the two, the soft-spoken Carl seems to have been her favorite, as indicated by the number of times their names are linked in print. Old-timers in Gallatin County's High Knob region talk of their retreat there, now an abandoned farm. Still, the blonde bombshell, no frizzled dud herself, remembered the time she found Charlie and Helen together in the latter's Shawneetown mansion. In her inimitable and uninhibited way, she piped, Helen, what have you done? Gone and changed gangsters? Helen's laughing reply was that the arrangement was only temporary. No stranger to Shawneetown herself or to the company of gangsters, the blonde bombshell once found herself on a houseboat belonging to Pink White House, the cockfighter of renown and brother of Doc Whitehouse, another well-known gambler in the area. The boat was docked near town. With her were attorneys Alphaeus Gustin and H.R. Lightfoot, the latter so drunk he could not get out of bed. Somewhat intoxicated herself, the young lady managed to lose her shoes in the water, and, as a result, had to dance barefoot on the wood floor of the dance hall uptown that night. When the blonde bombshell complained about the splinters, Helen, who was having a rather good time herself, shot back with a laugh. Don't worry, a few more drinks and you won't know the difference. What blasts the Holbrook legend to the skies is that too many of Helen's arrangements were of a temporary nature. For instance, Berger's one-time henchman Riley Simmons claimed he lived with her for two years. Over from West Frankfurt for a week's fishing in the lake region north of Shawneetown, Simmons found time between strikes to attend a dance at a nearby dance hall, where, oddly enough, a large tree grew from the center of the dance floor. Amid the whirling skirts, the wearers of which were fueled by the moonshine manufactured in the surrounding hills and hollows, he met Helen, ex-wife of veterinarian J.B. Holbrook and the liveliest and richest dancer of them all. When the music broke, they began to talk, and as it often does, one thing led to another. Soon this one-time tramp mule driver from Alabama was living in the richly appointed Richson Mansion overlooking the Ohio. In time, Simmons would stay with her in St. Petersburg, Florida. But two years into blossoming, their idyllic affair fell apart. Helen then took up with a baseball player from near Shawneetown, whose goal of breaking into the big leagues would never be realized. Some said because of his ties with the Burger Gang. Another veteran of the Burger Gang saw Helen more as a misfit than a sex symbol. She was an oversexed screwball of a woman who seemed to get turned on by hoodlums. She was nobody's sweetheart in the sense that she could form an attachment to any one person. She was no raving beauty, just a voluptuous woman whose unnatural sex drive guided her to the bed of any hoodlum, be he Burger or Shelton. If not a woman, then perhaps a diamond? J. Milo Pruitt, director of the First Trust and Savings Bank in Harrisburg and owner of the Pruitt Garage, 
had been a friend of Berger's for many years. A gruff, profane fellow, who, according to one who knew him, spoke to you like he hated you, Pruitt was one of moonshiner Tim Hobson's more distinguished customers. Pillars of the community are, after all, only human. Seeing Milo at her husband's place in Harrisburg's West End, Beatrice Berger naturally assumed he was there to gamble. Perhaps he was, but an elderly ex-gambler, who would not even allow this writer to take notes of their conversation, maintained that Pruitt was too tight and too shrewd to risk money on a pair of dice or a deck of cards. No doubt, girls hovering about the place learned, much to their chagrin, that their well-advertised favors appealed less to the banker than the crackle of a dollar bill. A man of power, albeit local, he possessed an iron will. Bad news for the easy money crowd who, nevertheless, continued to lust after his money. As stained glass appeals to Parsons, men of another stripe were much taken with his diamonds. The glitter of the big one he wore on his finger spoke volumes to certain gangsters. When the banker was robbed at gunpoint of his ring, Pruitt rang up Berger, requesting that he bring $1,000 to bolster the 500 in ransom he had already paid to the gunman, glowering in the office of his garage. True to his word, as given over the phone, Berger soon arrived cash in hand. When he slapped the bills down on the table, the ring was returned to its owner. But before the robbers could pocket the loot, Berger grabbed it up, saying, The hell with you guys, you won't get a dime. Art Newman told of the aftermath of this scene in the Buick garage. The four men, three of whom Newman named as Blackie Arms, Ray Walker, and Everett Smith, were naturally angry. When Charlie gave his word that the victim would send the $1,000 later, they stalked out, muttering of violence. Needless to say, they were never paid. To complicate matters even further, they decided that Pruitt really had paid Berger, but that the money was not forwarded as promised, and had been kept by Berger as his negotiator's fee. Whatever the truth of that facet of the diamond incident, Pruitt was out at least $500 and no small amount of mental anguish. This curious tale has a final twist. Pruitt later came to believe that Berger himself had engineered the robbery, with the idea of profiting from the result, and the banker believed he did. The very mention of the matter would raise the old fellow's blood pressure, laughed Arlie O. Boswell, who knew him well in later years. If any verification is needed for this theory, that encyclopedia of underworld chicanery unwittingly supplies it. According to Art Newman, rumor had it that Orb Treadway had lined up the robbery before his untimely death in Heron. If so, Berger almost certainly helped in the planning, for he and Treadway were very close friends. Beneath the manicured lawn of Harrisburg's Sunset Hill, oblivious to the main street yarns of his pal's trickery, lies J. Milo Pruitt. As they have for fifty years, tales about him and his diamond continue. Colored with each telling, they correctly depict the curious, hand-in-glove relationship between a gangster and a community leader, but they do nothing to explain the gang war. Other reasons given for that war include that Berger wanted the Sheltons to smuggle in some of his relatives by way of Florida, and that they refused to do so, and that the Sheltons were peeved because Berger didn't take a greater part in the Masonic Temple shootout, and vice versa. But the most convincing explanation came from a fellow who claimed to have once been Berger's collector. The falling out began, he said, 
over a dispute about the slot machine returns. Arlie O. Boswell, for another, said he had always heard that the trouble had started with the slots. Certainly in a position to know, Freddie Wooten, in an interview with the Post-Dispatch's Roy Alexander, said that Carl Shelton had learned from one of the collectors of Berger's twin set of account books. But it was left to the fellow using the pseudonym Ralph Johnson to provide the name of that tattling collector and to detail the first of the minor tremors that signaled a split in the organization. Johnson would seem to be the ideal choice to describe the sequence of events that led to the conflict, for, by his own account, he was the first collector of the proceeds for the Shelton Burger machines. In November of 1925, Burger suggested a partnership between the Sheltons and himself, whereby they would place slot machines in the more promising Williamson County roadhouses. The Sheltons agreed, providing Burger supplied the capital. In return, they would buy the needed protection from the local authorities. Of the proceeds, 50% was to go to the owner of the roadhouse, while the remaining 50% was to be divided among themselves. Berger was to be the treasurer. On December 18, 1925, all machines previously controlled by either party were placed under joint control, and for $30 a week plus expenses, Johnson set about the not unpleasant task of collecting the returns. That first month, the business partners had for their combined share $867, half the total take. A shutdown order was issued from Boswell's office on February 13th, but that lasted only a short time. Long enough, though, for Berger to decide that Johnson's salary of $120 a week plus expenses was too high. In stepped John Howard, whose salary was to be $100 a week plus expenses. During Howard's five-week stint, a profit of $1,700 was realized, but the treasurer only forwarded 300 of this to the Sheltons, according to Johnson. Possibly Carl would never have known of the missing $550 his partner owed. According to Wooten, the sum was $410. If Berger had not fired Howard, replacing him with Ward Casey Jones, a former coal miner from Heron. Carl bided his time, for a time. This interlude, no doubt, saw the dogfight that led to the shootout in the area behind the cabin. That his tip to Carl Shelton would trigger a gang war in which many of his friends would die probably did not occur to Howard. In any event, the Dorisville man was denied a role in the coming conflict, thanks to an incident at Harco in the pre-dawn of August 16, 1926. A crap game was running in the back part of McCormick's pool room. After Howard had slapped him during an argument, Saad Gaddis left the room, returning about 20 minutes later with a shotgun under his arm. Immediately, Howard took a position behind some of the by-now concerned gamblers and began firing at his would-be assailant. Their own welfare foremost in their minds, some of the men persuaded Howard to stop shooting. Still cradling his shotgun, Gaddis then reduced the tension by making his exit, followed by John Howard also calling it a night. Hardly was he out the door, however, when a shotgun blast was heard. Running outside, the pool room crowd found Howard, pistol in hand, lying dead from a charge that had torn through his left side under his arm. In his diary entry for August 16th, Alphaeus Gustin observes that one baby doll flick was in his office with a petition for contribution to John's widow. Some of the money may have been used to ship the body by rail from El Dorado to Providence, Kentucky for burial. 
Hard Rock Davis may have contributed to the Widow's Fund, but it is doubtful. Gaddis gave himself up, as Sheriff Small predicted he would. He was released after a coroner's jury ruled that Howard had died at the hands of parties unknown. Next time. Charlie came up behind Wild Bill and said, Turn around, you son of a bitch, so you can see who's killing you. 